Why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray uh, before we go to the communion table in just a little bit. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that we can celebrate a day like this today where yesterday uh, we focused on the independence of our country, the, the founding of our country that was in many, many, many ways about you and your word and your truth and, uh, and the vestiges of our Christian faith. And so, Father, we gather here today as followers of Jesus. And as we do so, Father, we want to learn more about you. And as we're going to see today, find our meaning and our purpose and our passion in knowing you. So help us to do that. We pray today, God, and we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, much of what I want to do this morning is, is tell you a story, a portion of my story. And the reason that I want to do that is because you and I uh, live in a culture today that is more and more and more about finding meaning and purpose. It's kind of the postmodern agenda, if you haven't noticed already, to find purpose and meaning in all we do. And one of the best ways to communicate meaning and purpose, to find meaning and purpose, is through swapping stories. Uh, Jesus did that all the time when he was on this earth. In fact, he told over 40 different stories that are recorded for us that, that were true-to-life kind of stories, if not always true stories. Some of them were true, and, and they were the kind of stories that helped people find meaning in tying them to the, tying them to the kingdom of God. And so I want to share with you a little bit of, of my story here this morning, a part of it that you haven't heard, and as I do so, I think you're going to be able to relate it to your own journey too, because we're all on a journey to try to find meaning and purpose in this world. Now folks, to best understand my story, I need to introduce you to or remind some of you of one of the most popular 20th century artists ever known, a guy by the name of Norman Rockwell. Look up here on the screen. Many of you remember who Norman Rockwell was. He lived from 1894 to about 1978, and he was one of the most popular artists of the 20th century, doing over 300 covers for the famous Saturday Evening Post magazine during, from a period of about 1930 to 1970. And Rockwell became known as a depictor of the typical but highly lauded American family and culture in the 1950s and the 1960s. So he painted scenes that many of us would look at and go, that's my life. That's the world that I'm growing up in right now, or as you're going to see today, the world that I did grow up in. What you need to know is that Norman Rockwell captured the family and the culture that I grew up in in Midwest Americana. You see, my family was not originally from Cleveland, Ohio, but my dad relocated to Cleveland before I was born when he got out of law school because he wanted to settle down in a nice, quaint American Midwest town. And after searching through the Cleveland area through a slew of different experiences, when I was about seven years old, my parents found a beautiful little town about 35 miles outside of Cleveland called Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Give me another click here, guys. Yeah, thanks. It's up there already. And this is where my Norman Rockwell experience began. You see, if you were to visit Chagrin Falls, Ohio today, the town that I grew up in, you would see a beautiful little New England-type town in a valley similar to Phoenix, but without the size and without the heat. I mean, there were large hills on all sides of this valley, and there was a river flowing right through the center of it with a big 25-foot waterfall right in the center of town. Picture a small little town with tree-lined streets and lots of shops and a beautiful gazebo right in the center of town. And get this, an American flag that would fly 24-7 all the days when I was growing up right in the center of town. At that time, in the early 1970s, we had one high school, one middle school, and two elementary schools with lots of school spirit. 
Friday night football games, car races on back roads, and a few burger joints to go to after the game. At that time, in the 1970s, Chagrin Falls had one barber shop, but you could choose either Charlie or Art to cut your hair. We had one soda shop inside a dime store called Woolworths. We had one department store called the Chagrin Department Store. Three hardware stores, all family owned. None of the chains had moved in yet. Everybody who owned a business was your neighbor back then. I grew up six houses from downtown, 71 South Franklin Street. You guys remember when, when roads used to be called maple, pine, and oak, and, and things like that? Now they call them like Appleberry Farms Lane or whatever like that, but not, in, not back then. They had very simple names, usually after trees. And I grew up in a four-bedroom home, bath and a half, no air conditioning. My dad still teases me that I have air conditioning today. I say, come visit me in the desert, you'll see why. And I grew up in this home from third grade until I went off to college. And I got to tell you, folks, this was a Norman Rockwell town with a Norman Rockwell lifestyle. Now, some of you are saying, what's that about? Well, let me show you some of his prints, and you'll start to understand the world that I grew up in and what started my journey or search for meaning. You see, in Norman Rockwell town, we had dinner five nights a week at home and it was a rigid schedule in which you did show up for dinner. How many of you remember family dinners where mom and dad said you are going to be home for dinner I don't care what your excuses are I'd walk in at night and I'd say what's for dinner my mom would say pot roast and I'd say yuck and, uh, and the, home I'm growing, or the home I'm leading now if I came home and said for Kim what's for dinner and she'd say pot roast I'd begin to salivate and I'd think what's the occasion right? I mean, it's just a different world now. But back then, we had dinner five nights a week, and we all enjoyed it as a family. Uh, give me another click here, guys. We had a small school. It wasn't necessarily a small one-room school like Rockwell is depicting here, but I came from a very small town with a very small school. And I don't know if you remember, but these were back in the days when kids were really well-behaved because teachers were allowed to touch the students. Do you all remember those days? I mean, I can remember when I was in third grade, Mrs. Moore's class, and I committed the impardonable sin I ran in the classroom. One of the rules were that you don't run in classroom, but it was art, and I got paint all over my hands, and I can remember it like it was yesterday, and I ran to the sink to wash my hands, and Mrs. Moore said, Mr. Rasmussen, what did you just do? She said, you ran in the classroom, out in the hall. So I went out into the hallway, and she went and got the other third grade teacher, Mr. Sekarik, and Mr. Sekarik brought his paddle out. And he took that paddle and he put it in my face. And I'm reading all the names of the students he had ever paddled that he wrote on the name of this paddle. And he put it in my face and he said, Mr. Asmussen, if you ever run in art again, I promise you that your name is going to appear on this paddle. And then he walked back into his classroom. And guess what? I never ran in art again. I got the message. And I avoided the paddle, but I was scared to death and thought, well, I'm going to obey, and I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to learn. And that's what we did in Norman Rockwell Town. But we had dating in the world that I grew up in, childhood crushes and prom dates. Don't need to discuss it too much because Kim wasn't in the picture yet, but, but it was a very innocent world that I grew up in. Yeah, there were some that lost their virginity, kind of a James Dean type of thing, but the reality was is that premarital sex was not all that common. Losing your virginity was a very big deal in the world that I grew up in. And speaking of this, we did have trouble in the town that I lived up in, but it was, but it was more misdemeanor type trouble, not felony type trouble. Do you know the difference? 
I mean, it was kind of an innocent type of trouble. The type of trouble we would get in is that we'd jump off the falls when you were not supposed to. Or we'd throw snowballs at parked cars. Or we'd, you know, graffiti the railroad bridge. We might even have an odd fight, but we didn't have guns and knives, except for hunting in the town that I grew up in. Fist fights were the kind of Clint Eastwood fist fights that you've had, where you just use your bare hands. And to make it a well-rounded experience of the world that I grew up in, we went to church. Now, you've got to listen very close, because we didn't go to church like I go to church today. Obviously, I'm a pastor. But, but church was just kind of something that you sort of fit into your, your life, but don't get too radical about it. Some of you are raised like that, too. So you went to church, especially on Christmas and Easter, and got all dressed up. But, but it wasn't church that was going to really affect your Monday through Saturday life. As we'll see in a minute, it might have made you a better citizen. But other than that, it was just sort of something you fit into your life. I was never taught how to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, how to put my hand to the plow and not look back, how to give my life wholeheartedly to him and make him the center. No, it was just sort of fit into my life as a Sunday thing that I did for years on end. And here was the reason why. Give me another click here, guys. And that is that I was told that I needed to get religion. And religion in Norman Rockwell's world simply involved two things. It involved living the golden rule, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, and engaging in good citizenship. That's what I was taught growing up. That what religion is really about is you learning to be a better person, you learning to treat others as you would have them treat you, which is a good thing, but then also engaging in culture and society to be a good citizen. Folks, this is the world that I grew up in. And not just me, but lots of people in small-town Americana, whether it was in California or Ohio. It was a very common scenario in post-World War II American life. It was small-town suburban life. You know, the American dream. Getting a nice house with a white picket fence, nice neighbors, two cars, a dog, a couple of kids, and a good job to support it all. And don't miss that the purpose and goal of this Norman Rockwell life was clear and unmistakable. It was to be a good person and citizen, get a good education, secure a good job, raise a respectable family, a wife and kids, engage in civic responsibilities like community, schools, and church, throw in a few holidays, save for retirement, while all the while passing it on to your kids to keep it going and keep it growing. This is the world that I grew up in. And many of you who are my age, 45 and older, will remember this as well. It was America, and Rockwell depicted it perfectly in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And in many ways, it was awesome, it was wholesome, it was true, but then there was also some deficits that I'll share with you in a minute that I was left feeling that became key to my search for meaning. Now, before we go on to evaluating more of this Norman Rockwell life, what I need to do at this point is share with you all the three pillars that make up a meaningful worldview. These are three things, three indispensable things, that any worldview, whether it's Marxism or Christianity, must address if it has a chance of bringing any sense of meaning or substance to one's life. And I'll give them to you up front so you note-takers can write it down, and then I'm going to explain each one of them. Three pillars to any meaningful worldview, and they are origin, purpose, and destiny. Origin, purpose, and destiny are the three indispensable issues that any worldview worth its weight in gold needs to be able to deal with. So consider origin. It simply answers the question, where did we come from? 
How did we end up on this planet? What are our roots? How did we get here? What is our origin? It simply assumes that you got to know where you came from if you're going to know where you're going. And once you answer this pillar, it leads very logically to the second one, and that is the pillar of purpose. This answers the questions, what should we do and who should we be? This is heart to the meaning issue. It answers the questions, what is life about? What is our purpose? What is our calling? What should we spend our time here on planet Earth doing? What are we made for? Why are we here? And so you're starting to see why these are such important questions that any worldview that intends to inform us about what life on planet Earth is about has to tell us about our origins, and then it also has to tell us about our purpose. And then thirdly, it also needs to inform us about our destiny. This simply answers the questions, where, question, where are we going? In other words, where is all this heading? What is our ultimate destination or goal? Is there some linear progression and final end to all of this, or is it just circular and repeating in nature? Origin, purpose, and destiny, folks. If you look closely at all the major world religions, if you look at any of the major worldviews, whether it be Marxism or humanism or evolutionism, they all tend to answer these questions put forth by the three pillars origin, purpose, and destiny. And the answers to these questions and to what these pillars are are going to determine your level of meaning and joy in this life. And so going to, back to Norman Rockwell world, I got to tell you, by the time I was a young teenager, I was starting to discern just rather intuitively what the answers to these issues were given the world that I grew up in. I mean, I couldn't have put it in the terms that I am now, but I started to sense, as many of you did, what the culture and world around me was telling me when it came to origin, purpose, and destiny. So, for instance, in the world I grew up in, origin, basically I was communicated this to, and that's that there's lots of room for diversity and opinion. It was kind of the precursor to multiculturalism, and so just accept it. My father was a Darwinian evolutionist. He said that we're all here by random chance. It's just a roll of the dice. One of his best friends was a Christian scientist. And so he used to argue and say, no, Frank, we're, we're here because we were created by, by God. And then another one of my dad's friends, a prominent radiologist in the Cleveland area, said, I have no idea how we got here. I'm kind of agnostic on the issue. There was a lot of diversity in Norman Rockwell world when it came to answering the issue of origin. A lot of discussion about that. And that kind of brought us then to the second pillar, and that was simply the pillar of purpose. And as I mentioned before, the purpose was really clear, and that was to live a good life, work hard, make something of yourself, enjoy it, and pass it on. And so being productive and a good citizen is what counted most in my younger years. I mean, the ones that we worried about were those who didn't go to college, or who didn't secure a good job, who who got in trouble with the law, who, who didn't produce and fit into culture. They were the ones who lacked purpose and direction. And so this would then lead to the third pillar in the world that I grew up in, and that's destiny. And I don't know if you remember, many of you remember it, but the mantra of society back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was simply this, let's just make it better and better. Do you all remember that? That's the world you and I grew up in. Let's just make it better and better. You see, our ancestors had come out of World War I, which was an atrocity. Then they came out of World War II, which was an atrocity. Korea, eventually Vietnam. And because the technological revolution had changed everything with the advancements of electricity and things like that, we thought we now have the resources. 
It's the great modernist hope. We can make things better. We can make the world that our ancestors dreamed of. We have the capacity to do it now. Better economic systems, better society, a better physical world around us. We can cure disease. And so the great modernist hope, the cry of culture that I grew up in and that many of you grew up in was let's just make it better and better. That became our destiny. We're going to bring heaven to earth in a very real way. The only problem is, is that nobody ever counted on postmodernism, which is what we live in right now. Because you see, back in the 1980s, something started to change in culture. Some of the hippies, as they grew up and got involved in culture and all that, started to realize that, that, that maybe this great modernist hope isn't going to happen. Because you see, we had to deal with Vietnam, and we had to deal with the rise of AIDS. And we had to deal with, with, um, with the urban plight, with drugs and with sex, with poverty, with world hunger. And as of late, we've had to deal with terrorism on our own soil. In other words, there have been left a whole postmodern agenda after this Norman Rockwell world in which people were very disillusioned and even hopeless with the world that they grew up in. And that's the point, point folks. As i got to tell you, as good as Norman Rockwell life was for me, and I mean many ways, it gave me so many blessings, at the end of the day, it also left me very short on finding and attaining meaning of any substantial kind. I mean, it really did. I, I can remember getting to about junior or senior high school age and wondering, is this really what life is about? I mean, is this really it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die? I mean, it seemed to me that on the best day, Norman Rockwell life was kind of a sedate form of humanistic goodwill. And I thought, there's just got to be something more to this. There just has to be. And please don't get me wrong, folks. I mean, in so many ways, I'm thankful for my upbringing and my childhood. I've communicated that to my parents. I had a good and wonderful upbringing. I was provided for and loved greatly, more fortunate than most. And I'm certainly not down on Norman Rockwell. I mean, he was simply painting and depicting the life that most of us knew, and he did it quite masterfully. It's just that none of this, please see, truly and really answered the questions of the three pillars, at least in a way that brought meaning to my life. I mean, not knowing where we really came from, just sort of going through the motions and trying to be a good citizen and, and doing all the things I was told to do, it just wasn't scratching where my soul itched. And as many of you know, because I've told this story before and I won't tell you it again today, maybe for another time, this began a search for me, a search for meaning, in which a few years later, after searching many, many alternatives, I found Jesus Christ in a personal relationship with him. And I became what we affectionately call today a Christian or a follower of Jesus. And what you need to know today, and if you don't hear anything else, hear this, because I've just come off of two weeks of really recapturing this and thinking about it, is that one of the things that drew me to Christianity, one of the things that drew me to Jesus Christ without me even knowing it at the time was how incredibly meaningful my life was going to become or was becoming in personal relationship with him. In other words, Christianity had very clear, livable, and workable answers to the questions posed by the three pillars. As we're going to see in just a second here, Christianity very clearly deals with issues of origin, purpose, and destiny to the point that my life and your life can now have meaning. Now, some of you are saying, what's that about? 
Now, I want you to open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Some of you are saying, finally, the Bible. I've been waiting for you to get to that this morning, Jamie. Well, told you this was a different message, but we're going to spend the rest of our time right now just parsing out a few scriptures that I think hopefully will scratch where you itch. As you're turning to Genesis 1, think about the issue of origin. How does Christianity answer the question, where did we come from? Genesis 1, verses 27 and 31 tell us this. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And skip down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And so check this out. Christianity very clearly and boldly says that God created this world. And though we don't have time to go into it today, this does not contradict science. We've spent the last 40 or 50 years after modernism trying to show people that this does not contradict science. It coincides with scientific findings, simply showing us that this all had a beginning. Isn't it kind of like the Big Bang tell us that? That this all had a beginning, and that this beginning was and is God. But then interestingly, the Bible tells us that something very bad happened after God made this earth. Isaiah 53, verse 6 tells us about this. It says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his or her own way. And so I love it. Christianity further goes on to explain why there's imperfection and flaws, what it calls sin in this world, and it's simply because we've chosen it. If you haven't heard it yet from me, you'll hear it over and over again. I've been your pastor for almost two years now, and I'm telling you, one of the most cogent explanations about this world comes from Christianity when it says that evil exists because we chose it. That God created Adam and Eve in his image, but with the capacity and freedom to choose good or evil, they chose to do evil, and we've been doing it ever since. It's in our DNA. It's in our genes. And so as good as you might be with good intentions and a good heart, God says there's evil right inside of you as well, and you're capable, you have the capacity of doing very, very bad things. And yet Christianity doesn't stop there in its explanation of origins. I mean, it tells us that God created us. It tells us that sin entered this world. But then, as many of you know, then it even explains how redemption and deliverance can come to our lives. Many of you know the passage. Look at John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so God, who could have left us in our miserable, pathetic state as fallen sinners in his image, decided not to. But he came to us 2,000 years ago in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on a wooden cross as a substitute for our sins so that we might have a restored relationship with God the Father through accepting and following Jesus Christ. Man, I've got to tell you, folks, this explains origin to me. God made us. We strayed. Sin entered in. And he provided a way back through his son, Jesus Christ. And even at the young age of 17, when I was first exploring this, this made a lot of sense to me. A lot more sense than some of the nebulous and even nonsensical worldviews that were also vying for my attention at that time. Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, once said that any worldview worth considering needs to be able to be both livable and rational at the same time. I love that. He said that it needs to make sense to you. In other words, you've got to be able to say, yeah, I get that. The peace has fallen into place. And it needs to be able to be lived out Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday. It has to be livable. 
And I got to tell you, when I look at how Christianity explains origins, I go, it makes sense and it's livable. Because on Wednesday of this week, when I'm going to confront sin, whether in my life or your life or whatever I'm doing this Wednesday, I'm going to have an answer to where that came from. Does Marxism? Not really. Does evolution? Eh, kind of, but not really. How about the other five major world religions? Look at it sometime. Nothing comes close. I'm not trying to be competitive here. I'm just saying nothing comes close in my estimation to helping explain origins as Christianity does whether it's the good things that you experience that the Bible tells us God created or the bad things that you experience that the Bible calls sin. It's all explained. We know where it all came from. We know where we came from. We came from God, but sin messed up this world, and God's in the process of redeeming it. Now we're just getting started, because now consider the second pillar that, that of any worldview worth considering, and that's the pillar of purpose, and look at what Christianity says. Look at Micah chapter 6 verse 8. Old Testament stuff, but so real. He says, God says, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, and I get this, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Folks, listen very close. If you're here today wondering what it is that God requires of you tomorrow morning when you wake up, you just found your verse. He requires of you to do justice and to love kindness with those around you and then to walk humbly with him each moment of each day. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking, well, duh, Jamie, I know that. I mean, I've been in Sunday school since I was three, and that's like Christianity 101. Tell me you got something more for me than that when it comes to the purpose of my life. Guess what? I don't. I don't. And neither do you. And one of the reasons that we look at a passage like that and we think, duh, is because we're not really thinking deep enough. I mean, have you ever really asked yourself how hard it is to walk with God 24-7? I mean, some of you are shaking your head, yes, thank you for that, because I find it really hard. And I'm your pastor. I'm surrounded by Christian things all the time. I'm surrounded by church, ministries, you. I mean, I'm just reminded all the time that I'm a Christian. And even with all of that, I find it very hard to walk with God 24-7. I find it very hard to commune with Him in such a way that I'm constantly praying and confessing sin and learning to love others and be patient and be kind and, and, and control the passions of my heart that go in all these different directions. And So when I read Micah 6, verse 8, I say, man, if this is all God asked me to do between now and the time that I die, I got my hands full. How about you? I got my hands full. And so tomorrow when you wake up, guess what your purpose is according to the Bible? Your purpose is to know him with everything in you. I mean, to have that, that old quiet time that you used to have but you don't anymore. So, so to get back to that devotional life where you spend concentrated time with him. And then your job is to go out and to do something significant in this world on a relational level that loves somebody in the name of Jesus or, or fights for justice in a world that's all about injustice at times. And man, if you get to the end of your day and you can say, I've walked with God today, I've honored him in truth, obedience, and righteousness, and relationship, and I've loved people to the best of my ability in the name of Jesus, man, the Bible says you have accomplished your purpose on planet Earth. Isn't that incredible? You have. And the cool thing is, is you can do that as a teacher, as a sanitation engineer, as a lawyer, as a retired person, as a student, or as a pastor doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you are, you can walk humbly with your God and you can love justice and you can do kindness. 
I love how Paul the Apostle would put it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. He'd say it this way. He'd say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you sense like a passion in this dude? I mean, he's saying, my purpose inside of heaven is to know God and to love other people, and I'm, I'm going to do this with everything in me. I love how Rick Warren said it years ago in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He says, life on earth is just the dress rehearsal before the real production. <laughs> and he's right. I mean, in heaven, we're going to get to see God face to face. No more excuses. He said, you might want to start practicing now. You might want to start getting to know me now and learn what it means to love others now because in heaven, if you're a believer of Jesus, you're going to get to know God and you're going to have to love others, even the ones that drove you crazy this side of heaven. So he said, you might as well start now because it's a dress rehearsal for the real production that's to come. So you got origin, you got purpose, and then think of destiny. Whoa, where are we going? I love how 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17 put it to us. Listen to this. This is great stuff. He says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who die, that you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died. For this we declare to you, that by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, aren't going to precede those who fall asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet sound of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now get this, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now you can do about 20 sermons on that passage. There's so much in there, and talking about the second coming and those who have died and Christ meeting us in the air and all that stuff. But, but guess what? The main simple message that it's giving us is that when we die as followers of Jesus, it's a good thing, a better thing, and that real life begins at death. I mean, talk about destiny. It's telling us that, that, that your best day in heaven, or your worst day in heaven, will be better than your best day here, that everything in heaven is going to make this place look like a dump. And so the way that we approach death in our country here today, which is right through this huge grieving thing, and oh, it's a terrible thing, and I got cancer, and I'm going to die. I mean, yeah, in one sense it's bad because you're going to miss those around you. But guess what? For 2,000 years, the great Christian hope has been, well, good. You get to go be with God for all of eternity. And guess what? When you get there, you're not going to be grieving anymore. Because when you get there, you're going to go, whoa, I, I, I shed tears over missing that for this? That's what the Bible says. I'm not, I'm not giving you a pipe dream. This is not wish fulfillment. I'm not trying to paint a better picture than it is. The Bible says we have a destiny that is so sure, that is so solid for those who follow Jesus, that we should be thinking about it every day. That we're not earthbound, we're heavenbound. Folks, please see that Christianity, at least for me, has answered the three-pillar questions with such satisfaction that even on my bad days, and I have them, I get depressed and discouraged and all that other stuff and emptiness. I mean, you know, we're never going to get away from that this side of heaven. But even on those days, I'm reminded of what the Bible calls the joy of my salvation. Why he put me here in the first place? And that is to know him and to find him and to find my joy and my satisfaction in him. Uh, Virgil, give me the five clicks here right now. As I've thought about it over the years, I've given a lot of thought, especially again with our postmodern culture today, I've thought, you know, what, what really does, is the meaning 
that Christianity brings to one's life, that Jesus brings to one's life. And I want to just wrap up here today, and I put it all up there because some of you have to write in all the blanks, and so I put it all up for you right now to write the blanks. We've only got about four more minutes till we go to the communion table. And uh, I just want to share with you really quickly five areas in my life that knowing Christ and being a Christian has brought meaning to. First is that he has brought direction and focus to my life built upon truth. How about you? He's brought direction and focus to my life. In other words, I know my purpose and goal in life. It's truthful, and that is to know God and enjoy him. In other words, I have something to sink my teeth into Monday through Saturday, as I said earlier with Micah 6.8, that keeps me busy all the days of my life. I love how Jim Elliott, the great missionary who was killed at a very young age, once said it. He said, and I quote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it's true. Bill Hybels calls this trading up. The fact that, yeah, we trade a lifestyle that we're no longer going to be about. We're not getting drunk on Saturday night and sleeping in and missing church. No, we're all here because we're going to celebrate the core of our faith, Jesus Christ. And so we traded that life, that dump of a life, for a life now that, though a struggle, is a life in which we can really know God. We have direction built upon truth. The second thing that Christianity has brought to my life is relational depth. And I mean with God and with others. And I'm not talking about just knowing God and loving others, but really knowing God and truly loving others. God is knowable and real. Did you know that? He moves, he acts, he reveals, he answers, he surprises, he gives peace. One of my ongoing dialogues with one of my good friends back in Cleveland who's a deist, somebody who believes that God started this whole thing but then sort of has taken a back seat to any involvement in this world. One of my ongoing dialogues with him is that he always says to me, Jamie believes in an interventionist God, meaning that he doesn't believe in an interventionist God. He truly believes God never intervenes in this world. So the other day I was emailing him and and uh, tell him about something that happened in my life recently here, and it's just a, what you and I would call a God move, and, but I didn't bring God into it. I just said, you know, this chain of events happened in my life, and this is so cool, and, you know, look at this. And then at the very end of the email, I put, interventionist God, question mark, love Jamie. And uh, he emailed me back saying, well, you know, let's keep the discussion going. See, the reality is God does intervene in this world. You and I know it. And it's one of those meaningful, substantive things that we have. We have a relationship with God, this side of heaven, in which we see what my friend Ludd in Cleveland calls God sightings all the time. How about purpose and hope in suffering? Now, folks, I don't say this arrogantly, but guess what? I can explain the what and the why of a 9-11. Can you? I can explain how and why this economy has collapsed. Can you? And I don't mean that I have all the answers to a 9-11 or to a collapsed economy, but get this. Christianity clearly tells us why bad things happen to good people. We have an answer to the whole issue of evil and suffering in this world, and it's a cogent answer. And though it's for another sermon, the answer is basically this, that when bad things happen to good people, we should evaluate whether we really are good people in the end. Amen? And I love when people say, why bad things happen to good people? I go, well, I beg to differ on the good people part. Because the reality is, is even though you might look good on the outside, you know what's in your heart, you know what you think every day, and we're not as good as we think we are. That's the first answer. And then even more to the point, the Bible says that bad things happen because sin is in this world and we continue to choose bad things. And you look close, almost everything that happens to us happens because either you chose something bad or somebody around you chose something bad, right? 
9-11 happened because we have terrorists who raised war on this country. They chose bad things. As I said in April, our economy has struggled greatly because you look at a two or three year, maybe even longer pattern, and many people chose some very unwise things when it came to their financial house, corporations and individuals alike. And the Bible says that that's all rooted in our hearts. It's all a result of sin. It explains clearly why we have evil and suffering in this life. And then God comes along and says, but I'm going to give you purpose in the midst of it. I'm going to work in your life anyways. I'm going to run interference. I'm going to love you, despite all the choices that you have made. Could it get any better than that? I mean, that's what Christianity says about purpose and hope in the midst of our suffering. And then fourthly, how about considering the whole idea of something substantive to offer others? In other words, you want to give the greatest gift you can to people around you? Give them a gift of sharing your faith with them. I give them the gift of sharing with them the, the hope and purpose, the, these three pillars, origin, purpose, and destiny that you found in Jesus. And then as we've already established, what brings meaning to my faith is a sure knowledge of where I'm going. This destiny pillar is so solid for Christians. I mean, this world's not our home. We're just passing through. History is linear. It has an end, and someday we're going to be there. And get this, the end is much better than the middle that we're in right now. And so as we go to the communion table, I simply have one question for you, and it's simply this. What about you? What about you? And some of you are thinking, yeah, those non-Christians that are seeking among us today, I hope they find the purpose that you found, Jamie. I'm not just talking to the non-Christians among us today. If you're a non-Christian, I hope you would consider the, the merits that, that Jesus can bring to your life as far as giving you purpose in your life now. But you know, I find a lot of Christians live very mundane and placid lives. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, when Jesus says that you're going to have joy like a river flowing out of you, I don't sense that many times in Christians. Is that an understatement? So the reality is I'm not sure many of us have really dug deep enough when it comes to finding meaning. That's what I call today's message, finding meaning in our lives. But if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. It's there. And it's there because Jesus is now in your life. And in and through him, he brings you a sense of purpose and destiny and even tells you where you came from and what's wrong with you. And all of this added together, shaken together, can create in you such a sense of purpose and meaning that it's, it, it's, it's contagious. And so that's my hope for Scottsdale Bible. So I've been away for a couple weeks now. I've been meditating on our vision statement of our church. I'm going to keep bringing it before you. Our vision statement is to build a community of Christ followers who are marked, who are known for an unwavering faith and an unconditional love. And i got to tell you, that's what I'm continuing to shoot for because when I'm in that sweet spot of trusting God in an unwavering way and loving others around me with the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of patience and kindness and caring and truth-telling, i got to tell you, I have meaning and I have purpose, and you can too. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for, uh, once again, in your word, guiding and directing us into a very cogent and livable understanding of you, the world around us, and even ourselves. As a father, as we go to the communion table now, we want to celebrate the core and the meaning of our faith, which is Jesus himself. And so as we hand out this body and this, or this bread and this wine that symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you might help us to once again get in touch with why we're Christians in the first place. And it has nothing to do with attending church or something silly like that. It has everything to do with our faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So encourage us during this time, encourage us this week 
that all of us can find the meaning, the purpose, the joy, the peace that we're looking for in a certain measure this side of heaven. And it all focuses on our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.